You know, it's kind of sad when I have a work that I'm doing, uh, when I'm taking notes for rumination. And I look at my notes and it's like, man, I only have three pages of notes. <laughs> I, I gotta wonder, what is it with Peter Jackson and carrots? He's always eating a carrot on screen. I don't understand. I mean, I, I love carrots too. <sighs> there's a couple more issues with this one. Uh, there's a couple of scenes that are just a little bit... And I kind of want to discuss one of the things that I also hear is a major complaint of the film. But I'm going to save that for later. So just I just wanted to give you a heads up that there will be a few more negative criticisms in this one than there are in most of the other things I've been doing. Also, quick question. Why is it always raining in Brie? That poor town can't get a break. It's always freaking raining in Brie. Um, <clears throat> so here's another interesting one for you. Why are there men in the prancing pony who are who are from what the movie seems to s uh, presume are there to try and hurt or kill or kidnap or whatever thorin i i ask that because the idea that there's an, a bounty on for his head at this early stage okay i can buy that as ox out and about sauron's counting forces sure whatever but this is brie like 60 years ago while it's not exactly the great bastion of good and wonderfulness, things have also not gotten as bad as they will by the time of the Lord of the Rings. Where in Fellowship of the Ring, it was ba it was practically a place, a, a nest of spies for Sauron and his forces, or Saruman and his forces. I, I just find it a little bit interesting and odd to believe, but I digress. What's funny is it occurred to me so obviously that they weren't there for the bounty that my first thought was that they were actually there for one of two other reasons. Because he's a dwarf, and screw dwarves, or because he was alone, and then we can take his stuff. And honestly, I like those ideas a little bit better myself. I also like how all of this started because Gandalf had an interest in the, the, the unaccounted for ring. All of the rings, they knew where they were. Uh, they knew the One Ring was out in the ocean, <laughs> and they knew that uh, it, it was lost forever, and they knew where all, all the Dwarven Rings were and all the Elven Rings were. They didn't know where one Dwarven Ring was, and uh, or excuse me, the Human Rings, that's what I meant to say. They weren't sure where one Dwarven Ring was. And I find that interesting that that was kind of the initial impetus, the original motivator for Gandalf to start looking into this situation. Because eventually he starts to have more and more motivation, not just personal motivation, but of course he's concerned about Smaug. And, and to skip ahead a little bit, as Thrain later confirms, Smaug is actually in league with Sauron. Which makes me wonder, but we'll get to that. It is a little bit of a Godzilla situation here where the character who has his name in the title only shows up very much towards the end and doesn't really get a big showing. And even the final big climactic battle against him doesn't even happen in this movie. But again, I want to save most of those thoughts for later. So instead, let's shift over here and talk about Bayorn. Now, Bayorn is terrifying, and I like that. I like the fact that he comes across as genuinely deadly. Even Gandalf is is visibly afraid of this man, and I do enjoy that. Um, I also like the fact that the bear is something, it, we, when in bear form, is something that the orcs even Azog, who has pretty much been shown to be a ha, ha, alpha male orc, is still like, no, no, we're not, we're not going after that. We'll leave it be. It helps to emphasize him. And uh, I, I do have to ask why the door latches from the outside. 
I also have to ask why no one else figured out that there was a latch on the outside. But whatever, whatever. You know, dwarves, right? Am I right? Can't open their own doors. They figure nobody else can either, I guess. I don't know. Excuse me. So then Azog is replaced by Bolg, who is very disinteresting. Azog at least has some interesting parts to him, as I mentioned in the last film, with regards to him being a, an insight into Orcish culture and, and what an Orcish king would be, you know, the Orcish leadership would be. Bolg is just an elite. MMO term. In other words, he is stronger than an average enemy. And that's it. That's all there is to Bolg. He's got a cool design to him. Don't mistake me. I really like the plates bolted into his, and the skin growing over the plates thing. That looks awesome. But he's otherwise just another orc. And, eh. What I like, though, is that Azog goes and actually flat out talks back to Sauron. Now keep in mind he knows that Sauron. He, we're, we're kind of meant to think that this is still the Necromancer, and therefore maybe we have a reason for thinking that Azog would talk back to just a human sorcerer. But Azog is talking to Sauron. I bring this up because I've brought up the point of orc loyalty before, and how the orcs are basically not really controllable, and the best you can do is kind of push them in a direction and hope for the best. So I kind of wonder if there are certain very strong, very uh, willed, if you will, orcs who basically do whatever the hell they want to regardless of the eye. And Azog seems to kind of confer that, confirm that concept. He flat out, it, it, he, he almost flat out says, he comes one step away from it saying, I'm only loyal to you because you promised me Thorin. That's the only reason I signed up with you. So I do admit, uh, going back to Bayorn for a moment, uh, the Bayorn scene where, you know, he, again, he's very dangerous and, and Gandalf is like, oh god, that actually made me laugh. I kind of liked that. It was extended uh, a little bit, I believe, in the extended edition. I'm not actually 100% sure about this. Uh, believe it or not, this is actually my first time seeing the extended edition of this film, and that will be true with the next one as well. I've watched the theatrical cut several times, so some of the stuff is a little bit new to me with regards to the cinematic universe anyways. But I do like the layout of of it, not just because it made me laugh, not just because it made Bayorn appear to be very dangerous, but because it's more of Gandalf being Gandalf, as in Gandalf as of now. Remember, he's still learning, he's still growing, he's still kind of the noob, at least relatively speaking, and therefore there are things that still frighten him. There's also a great scene just after that where uh, Bayorn flat out says, Is Sauron back? And Gandalf's response is, Saruman, the wise, says that cannot be. And then Bayorn says, And what does Gandalf the Grey say? And Gandalf never actually finds himself to answer him. They're interrupted. It's a nice scene, and it, again, kind of helps pushing Gandalf forward, Gandalf's character arc and the way he's going to... to move forward and try to become more, well, of the hero he will eventually become within the confines of the movie, I remind you again. <laughs> so, Mirkwood. Oh my god, Mirkwood. I actually only have, like, three notes about Mirkwood, but all of them have to have the word terror in them. I'm not kidding. Mirkwood is downright terrifying. They did a phenomenal job of making that place absolutely freaking horrifying. 
I also have a quick note here. It's been mentioned in the first film, and it's mentioned here as well, that everyone thinks that the One Ring was lost into a river, drained out into the ocean, and it's gone. They're never getting a, the One Ring out from under the ocean. So they all think it's gone, gone. The possibility of Sauron returning, that's a little more possible. But no one thinks the One Ring is anything approaching coming back. And I point that out because it helps to re-emphasize why Gandalf went to such lengths to prove that it was the One Ring back in Fellowship. Because it was so impossible for it to actually be the One Ring. He had to know for 100% certainty. So, Mirkwood. <clears throat> this is actually probably one of the better presentations I've seen in a film of illusory magic. There's a lot of really nice stuff. Some of it's subtle, some of it not. Uh, the camera angles are pretty obvious. There's a couple of scenes like, I love the bit where Bilbo looks down, and he, and, and then they switch to a shot of, uh, you know, someone walking backwards, even as he's walking forwards, and he looks behind and he sees another him, you know. Just little stuff like that because your mind is being messed with. Because that is what Mirkwood does and the illusory nature of it. They even flat out call this out much, much later, where it's like, the snakes will get you. And Gandalf's like, no, no, they're not here. I point that out because it, again, it's really a great setting piece. It helps to not just to make this place terrifying, but terrifying in a new way, and terrifying in a way that's consistent with the low tier of this setting. All of this horrible reality-altering stuff isn't actually happening. That would be pretty high tier for that kind of stuff to happen. Instead, you are being... All that's happening is your mind is being meddled with, which is ultimately a very low-tier thing. Hell, in real life, there are mushrooms that can do that to you, for God's sakes. So, I like it. I like the way they present it. It is claustrophobic. It is closed. It is disorienting. And it's wonderful. I love every moment of it. It does drag on a little bit longer in the Extended Edition, but I'm okay with that because, again, they do a really nice job of it. I shouldn't say in the Extended Edition. I'm sorry, I didn't mean that. It drags on a little longer than, you know, I would think it should, but it's okay because I'm with it. And then there's the third point about Mirkwood I want to point out. He goes above the canopy, and he sees this beautiful forest, and I love that. Beautiful forest, lovely little butterflies or birds or something. It's wonderful. It's so peaceful, and of course it is. Why wouldn't it be? See, one of two things is happening here, or possibly both. Number one, all of the messed up nature of the wood is an illusion. <laughs> I mean, it's probably an old, gnarled wood. We know that the evil power is seeping in and causing things to go bad as far as plant life and animal life. But I mean, like, the horribly screwed up nature of it was pure illusion, and it is actually quite a nice place, relatively speaking. Or, and I like this idea a lot better, the surface is also an additional part of the illusion. Because one of the things that has been consistent, and Frodo himself mentioned this back in Fellowship, and it's mentioned a few other times as well, uh, Aragorn brings this up as well, that one of the tools of the enemy is to appear fair and be foul, to, to paraphrase. So I love the idea that on the surface, which is above the canopy, the forest is beautiful and glimmering and, and just gorgeous. And as soon, so in other words, very, very appealing surface, but as soon as you go just below the skin, just below the canopy, you see just how messed up things are. I like the metaphor, even if it's not a literal thing. So, 
terrifying, like I said. Uh, I like... I like the fact that the ring allows him to actually understand what the spiders are saying. It's nice to help emphasize something that the movies never have, so I've kind of had to ignore it as canon. In other words, that uh, spiders are actually intelligent creatures in this setting, or at least some of them are. You know, spawns of them, Gulliant and all that. Uh, they're not the only ones, actually. Some wolves are, too, and there's a few others. But regardless, it was nice to have the spiders, because when I say intelligent, I don't mean they were smart. I mean they were capable of communication. Which is fairly intelligent, but by human standards, not that great. Yeah. Um, in fact, if anything, I would say their intellect is probably about on par with orcs. Rather appropriately. So earlier in the first film, Bilbo killed an orc to save Thorin. It was the first person he ever killed, really. Then there's a couple of other stabs and a couple of other fights... And then, you know, he stabs his way, he saves his friends. <laughs> That's going to be a running trend, by the way. But then a little, I don't know what to call it, a baby spider, an undeveloped spider comes out, and he murders the crap out of it for the ring. And he flat out says, mine. It's a very powerful scene, even more so because Martin Freeman perfectly gets across the menace and then immediately the shock at his own action. The way he's just, did I just do that? Did I just do that? You know, he's just, what? 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 Why? You know, it's, it's powerful. It's great stuff. I love it. And it helps to show uh, not only why he's a little more, you know, he is fairly resistant to the ring, not as resistant as Frodo was, it's worthy of note. But part of why he's, he's more resistant to it is because it turns him into someone like that, and he knows that, and he recognizes that, and is able to use that to help push against it. Um, so, of course, I have a note here that says, it's good to know that Legolas was always a badass. <laughs> Legolas and uh, Tariel are both literally superhuman. I mean... Obviously, they're elves, but you know what I mean. They are elites. They are boss characters. They fight. They they fight the, the spiders. They imprison the dwarves. I don't have much to say about that. Elves imprisoning dwarves is no more noteworthy than dwarves imprisoning elves. Remember, these people, these cultures, have had bad blood for forever, as I mentioned back in the first film. What I find interesting is Thranduil. So first he has this wonderful scene where he has an illusion. Now, some people have interpreted it different ways, and, and there's a lot of different ways to interpret this. My interpretation, that scarring is what he really looks like. That is the scars he received fighting the worms of the north. And he maintains an illusion at all times to hide that disgusting part of himself. It, it seems to fit the character perfectly, because Thranduil is in almost every respect what you normally typically think of when you think of the word elf. You know, uppity, pointy-eared, uh, higher, holier than thou, my people matter. Oh, I will deign to help you if you will help me. I live forever. What's a moment to me? You know, all that crap that usually goes along with the cliché of elf, most of which stems from Tolkien himself, at least in modern literature. However, I'm okay with it. First of all, because the actor does a good job of the role. Props to him. He does some good stuff in the third film, too. And I'll, I'll talk more about and, and praise him more later as well. But, see, the weird thing is I want to talk about Thranduil a little bit more later. <laughs> but I'm going to bring him up now because he's got 
a little more layers to him. Because he's not actually evil. He's not a villain. He is an antagonist, but he is not a villain. He's not against the party, per se. He's not the enemy. He's not a bad guy. He's very elven. He has layers to him, and those layers will be explored as we go through. It's clear he has an interest in helping, and not just for his own selfish reasons, but primarily because of his selfish reasons. And I bring that up because too often some people th seem to think that if you give a character you know, sympathetic reasoning, they're automatically just a good guy, rather than a person with some complexity or layers to them. It's part of that whole good guy, bad guy, binary mentality. Thranduil, Thranduil ah, I hate his name, isn't actually in either category. He is neither a good guy nor a bad guy, and I think that's one of the things I like about him, is because he is a nice little in-between layered character. And that brings me to Thorin. Uh, obviously also a layered character. It's funny because Thorin has a great deal of bias against elves and a great deal of pride, which is understandable. What I find interesting about it, though, is I have a feeling that Thorin, for all his bias and pride, would have accepted the deal, if not for the fact that he had one remaining hope. I bring that up because it's going to be a recurring theme, and I'm going to try and bring it up each time it happens, because it's going to be very relevant, especially for the third film, of how much Thorin really does put stock in Bilbo now. Like, he, he has faith in him, he respects him, he starts calling him Master Baggins a lot in this film, and he, he clearly values him and his friendship. And that's a very recurring theme throughout the entirety of this film, with one exception. So, in other words, I personally think Thorin, for all his pride, would have been able to swallow that for the aid if, if he had no other choice. But he knew Bilbo wasn't with him. He's like, no, it's okay. Bilbo's got our backs. And he was right, too. And that's the best part. Because shortly thereafter that, he actually breaks him out. I'm going to talk about some other stuff later. I know there's some stuff in between here. I'll get to it. So he breaks, he breaks them out. And they're all like, why are you sending us down? Why do you want us to get out of the cask? You're crazy. And then Bilbo just looks at Thorin, and Thorin says, do it. Immediate trust. Immediate respect. Yep, Bilbo's got an answer. And again, he was right. And then when Bilbo finally goes down, Thorin was actually waiting for him. Actually had grabbed both of the rocks so that he could wait there for when Bilbo came down as well, and they could bring him aboard and take him with him. Um, if it's not obvious, I really like both Thorne and Bilbo in these films. So, uh, <clears throat> so the river scene, uh, as I said, Legolas and Toriel are literally superhuman. <laughs> I'm probably going to get some flack for this opinion, but I kind of liked the river scene. I will freely admit I liked it more early on. I'm not going to claim it's some big epic ethos of, you know, pathos and celebrity and no no it's just it's a cool scene i think it worked better earlier on because earlier on it was a lot more clear and a lot more linear and then people started jumping at other people's heads and tossing axes around and and basically being a cartoon but i'm still okay with it it doesn't bother me nearly as much as it bothers several other people i've talked to because i thought it was fun it was a nice, fun little, ha, ah, let's just kill the orcs kind of a thing. And let's be honest, the orcs are basically just bonus points at this point. They have been for a long time in, in these movies. The only orcs that are actually worth a damn are the elites, like Bolg, Azog, and that's actually kind of it within these films. And, you know, the big ones in the previous films. I'm actually already on the face, too. 
And by phase two, I mean page two. Let's talk about Gandalf. I I actually, so I kind of parceled out my notes again. I told you I'm trying to do more and more of that as we go through here. So I have a section just to talk about Gandalf, even though it's actually like four or five scenes spread out across the rest of the movie and uh, and doesn't actually even conclude here. That His stuff actually concludes in the next movie. But I wanted to talk about it. First of all, the first thing I noticed, and I remember this because my sister noticed it the exact same way. I was watching this film when it came out in the theaters with my sis right next to me. She's a wonderful person for me to watch movies with, and a terrible person for everyone else, near as I can tell. And I know that sounds horrible, but what I mean is my dear sister, she likes to talk during movies. And I don't mean like, oh my god, or what are they doing, or whatever. No, she's a reactor. She will react to a film, which helps me to enjoy it. And she'll also say things like, oh my god, the bars are open outwards. You know, to, to go to the point I was just about to mention, about how the, all the bars were broken out. As in, the dead burst out. Note they never say that. It's a nice subtlety. It's not super subtle. It's actually kind of overt. But it would have actually been bad if they flat out called attention to it rather than just showed us it so that we can understand it ourselves. But she saw it just like I did. The first thing, they're broken out. They broke out. And I love it when she does stuff like that. I also, I know this is in the third movie, but just while I'm on the topic, while we were watching the third movie together in theater, she was also sitting right to my right, um, as we were going through the film, I would lean over at certain points and I would do this. Because there's the first army, Battle of Five Armies, and then I would go, and I would do this, and I was building up to it because I kind of had an idea of what was coming. You know, obviously I've read the book, and I didn't know exactly what the movies were going to do because the movies were their own thing. But by the time we got to four, if you remember, the things kind of settled down. And so this is why I was doing that, because I was kind of building the scene in the theater as the movies were building the scene, because there was a big gap before the Fifth Army showed up, and she's like, where's the Fifth Army? Where's the Fifth Army? Oh, God. And then when it finally showed up, I just very casually went, She's like, oh, crap! It, it was great. Anyways, anyways. <laughs> so it's an interesting moment in hindsight to realize that Sauron is back. Now, they all know he could come back because the ring endured, right? So he had the capacity to come back. He survived. But the idea of him coming back and being an active force was basically pushed out of everyone's minds, or at least, I shouldn't say everyone's, but several people's minds. So the idea that he was back is kind of a weird sort of pseudo-revelation in the fact that it's not really a revelation so much as a damn it, I was right, kind of a moment. Which, if you were paying attention to my previous uh, ruminations, you know was kind of a common theme with Gandalf. Damn it, I hate being right. So then we have the trap of Dol Guldur. I don't know why, but I've always liked Dol Guldur. It's always been one of my favorite, actually I would say probably my favorite fortress in all of Lord of the Rings. And I don't actually know why, because it was that way before Lotro. Now, I mention that because Dol Guldur is a massive area, which is an overworld and multiple instances and a raid in Lotro. It's a huge, huge thing. But even before I played the game, I was like, yeah, I can't wait to go to Dol Guldur. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know why. But they do a really good job of presenting it here, both on the small scale, showing just how screwed up the place looks, and on the large scale. And the idea of a veil, you know, again, illusory magic, making it look like the place is hidden, the place is empty, excuse me, uh, hiding those who are within it. It's a very nice touch. How else can you amass an army by yourself without anybody noticing? 
I bring that up because it also kind of ties into something I kept bringing up in the original trilogy. The fear that Sauron feels. I, I, I uh, related him to the Reapers of the Mass Effect series. Powerful, certainly. Probably more powerful than anything else walking around right now. But not unbeatable, not invincible, just very, very strong and cautious enough to try and manipulate your way through things and weaken your enemies before you fight them. And that is again shown here. Sauron, of course, is not at his full strength, and he is still trying very hard to make sure that nobody even knows he's back, let alone you know, uh, actually being an active force. It's one of the reasons why uh, Gandalf told Radagast, you have to go and not come back, because one of us has to go get word out, period. So then he meets Thrain. Now, I noticed it was not an orc immediately. I don't know. Kind of any other people are like, aha, that's not an orc. But what I find most interesting is that I, I kind of get why they cut the Thrain scenes. They're not super necessary, but it was some nice closure. Because Thrain's fate is left completely unresolved uh, in basically everything else, uh, actually, without without those extra scenes. But also, so Thrain's fate is resolved, and his connection to his son is resolved, and his connection to Gandalf is resolved. Remember, as I pointed out earlier, what really got Gandalf going in all this, what started, the first pebble that started the avalanche, was that last dwarven ring that was missing. And then there's that horrifying scene where Gandalf realizes, reaches down, pulls up his hand, and one of his fingers is chopped off. Answers that question. That ring has been reclaimed by Sauron, like several others were. So... Uh, Thrain also, of course, it keeps insisting. We can't, he can't go into the mountain. He can't go into the mountain. He never quite says why, but I've always been of the impression that the main reason he said so was because he was worried his son would succumb to the sickness that, well, his father did. As in Thror, to be more clear. In other words, everyone accused Thrain of falling to the same sickness that Thror did, but he didn't, obviously. He was just captured. But would he have? We see in this film Thorin begin to succumb to dragon sickness. We see the very first vestiges of it. So it's not like Thrain has an invalid concern here. And that is kind of a horrible thing to think about, isn't it? I don't want my son to go back there because I don't want to lose my son. He'd still be alive, but he wouldn't be my son. Which is a semi-common theme in The Lord of the Rings, actually. There's a line Thrain mentions... And it's something that Smaug himself confirms. It's the idea that Smaug and the Dark Lord are in cahoots. That they are already in league with each other. Now, I bring that up because, in many ways, Smaug is arguably the single most powerfully dangerous, deadly creature in the setting at this point in time. At this point in time. Some arguments could be made for certain other individuals, but, you know... I would personally put Smaug, as he's portrayed in the movies, at the top of the food chain. And I have more to talk about that later, of course, when we really talk about Smaug. But I bring it up because what could Sauron possibly offer Smaug that he doesn't already have? He has a literal ocean of gold. I find that curious. I have my own theories, but I'll get more into that later. 
It's just food for thought. By the way, you remember how I mentioned, did Gandalf teleport into Goblin Town? In the extended edition, it's made much more clear that he actually can teleport. It's actually blinking, which is a short-range uh, teleport in, in most fictional terms. Which actually makes a lot of sense, because he's actually done that kind of off-camera-y before, in like Fellowship of the Ring, for example. He just blinks into Bilbo's house at the beginning. And then there's a wonderful scene a wonderful scene where the necromancer reveals himself and they do some great stuff visually huge props to the art department because at first he appears to be on fire and so he looks like the iris of a giant eye with the flame forming the actual or i'm saying that wrong uh, excuse me he appears to be the pupil and the flame around him forming the iris and then his own shadow blots out everything except for the fire so he literally looks like the great eye of sauron except you can clearly see the individual in the middle there. It's a great touch. It's very, very well done. But even a weakened Sauron can beat a weaker Gandalf, and we see Gandalf eventually lose that fight. It's actually really nice watching the fight go back and forth. I thought it was really well done, personally. And so... One thing I noticed as they were going through Dol Guldur earlier is the camera spent several time lingering on those cages. There's actually a term for those. I can't think of it right now. It's a cage where you just lock someone in it, and it's dangling out in the open, and you just leave them there until they die. It's actually a really, 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 really horrible thing. And so Gandalf joins them. How very Sauron. He has his own arrogance, of course, and he wants to ensure that Gandalf gets to have a nice view of things as he slowly rots. And that's where we leave Gandalf until the next film. So the dwarves come across Bard. Now, Balin, who hasn't actually had a huge amount of time doing what he's good at. He, he's been, he's the other one who is old. He's the other one who was around when all this stuff happened. You know, experienced warrior and a bit of a diplomat. He knows a lot about a lot. He's got that, that knowledge, knowledgeable air to him. But he's never actually been able to practice his diplomacy. He's tried a couple of times, but things, things, other dwarves keep getting in the way. It's nice because Balin, Balin, excuse me, is finally allowed to do his diplomacy with Bard. And then, of course, Thorin and uh, Dwalin get in the way. <laughs> Go figure. Um... I'll, I'll cut back to that in just a second. I do want to mention something because this is actually important for later. Uh, Thranduil is questioning one of the orcs, right? And the orc is like, ha, we killed the one dude. And uh, Legolas... We see here the beginnings of Legolas's character. As much as I liked Legolas back in the original trilogy, he didn't have much of a character arc. Most of his character arc was his developing friendship with Gimli, and that was kind of it. And there were a few good scenes about that, but that was kind of it. Here, we actually see a real character arc for him, because he starts off being portrayed as a typical elven you know, twat, and yet he actually isn't. He was just being a typical elf to a dwarf. When he's amongst other elves, he actually portrays himself, you know, he's a lot nicer of a person. And this is very critically important. When Thranduil kills the orc, after having given his word, Legolas questions him on that. You said you're going to free him. It's never implicitly stated, but Legolas is bothered by that. Even though it's a frickin' orc, Thranduil broke his word. You killed him, despite swearing you wouldn't. 
And that gets to Legolas, and that's important. It helps to establish this person as someone other than the Legolas we knew from the original trilogy and the one we've already seen up until now. I also want to talk about Thranduil, because his strategy here is so bloody obvious. He's afraid. He's, uh, <laughs> um, he's pulling a gray mane, if you will. Some of my viewers will get that. He's holding up behind his walls and saying, Nope, nope, I'm not listening, I'm not listening, woo! <laughs> Nothing else, leave me alone. You know, it's fairly typical. It's happened in real life, and that happens all the time in fiction. When one group of people says, Nope, not our problem. And it almost universally does not work. In fact, uh, it's actually funny. In some works of fiction, it makes things worse. A group of people who decide to isolate themselves from everything else would be, for example, more vulnerable to a zombie outbreak. Or the Borg, to go on to the other side of the scale. So he decides to hole up. And it's so interesting to me, because when I started thinking about it, I realized that he is going through the same motions that Saruman did. I actually have a feeling that Thranduil would have ended up capitulating for fear, because that is his motivation, and it's all over the place, all over his face and his actions and the way he talks. He is afraid. He understands. And that's the thing. Like Saruman, he is wise. He gets it. He understands what's coming, and like Saruman, he's terrified of it. And I mean Saruman from the original trilogy, by the way, to make that clear. He gets it, and he's terrified of it. And unlike Saruman... He decides to just hole up and hope the storm passes over him, despite his very close proximity to Dol Guldur. Good luck with that, buddy. <laughs> so I have a note here. I don't have much to say about it. I just want to praise Lake Town. I love the idea of Lake Town. It's such a cool city. It's such a cool concept. It's got brilliant architecture, which actually looks kind of like it should under the circumstances, both conceptually and in terms of physics. They've got this whole thing. I love it. I, I have nothing but praise for it. It is such an awesome area. I want to do my own Lake City just because I love the idea that much. I just wanted to praise that. Now, now I've got to talk about some negative stuff. I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm not going to be dishonest with you guys. I'm not going to whitewash it. Uh, I feel like Alfred, who is actually, I'm not sure if he's ever named in the films. I, I, I looked it up. Uh, Alfred is the sniveling toady to the master, and the master, who is never named outwise, uh, as played by Stephen Fry. No offense to Stephen Fry, he actually does a really good job with the role. But both of them are very boring characters. They are one-note characters. Uh, in fact, they are so blatantly one-dimensional that I think I will start using them as, the, as a textbook example of what I mean when I say a one-dimensional character. Alfred is the sniveling toady, and that's it. There is no other depth, no other complexity, no other parts to his character at all. And that will continue in the third film. The Master is, well, it's, it's hard to summarize it into a sentence, but he's, you know, he's, he's basically your stereotypical pompous aristocrat. And that's it, and there's nothing else to him. And that's why I lament it, because even some of the more smaller characters, I hate to compare this to the original trilogy again, but even some of the smaller NPCs over in the original Lord of the Rings had at least a couple layers of depth to them. Like, Aomer had exactly two layers of depth to him. And, okay, I'm, actually, I'd say three if I wanted to be generous, but two at least. 
which already, I mean, isn't much, but it's more than this. You know? In fact, I kept remembering Denethor and the variance between Denethor, who was actually a very uh, interesting character with, a, with several layers to him and several aspects to his character and very well performed, compared to the Master. And, of course, comparing Grima Wormtongue, who, again, had layers to him and was performed by the frickin' awesome Brad Dorif, compared to Alfred, who has nothing. Comparing those side by side, I think, is the best and easiest way to make my point. I will also say that uh, Alfred is one of the reasons why, if you're going to make a character like that, you probably want them to be at least a charismatic actor. Because a charismatic actor can take a sniveling character and make the audience at least like them. Alfred came very close to get off my screen for me. For those of you who have not heard me use that phrase before, um, there's a difference between a character I hate, like, say, Garrosh Hellscream, and a character that I just want to get the hell off my screen because I'm actually, the, the presence of the character is actually detracting my enjoyment from the work, whether it's a game or a book or a TV or a show or whatever. And uh, that's actually a small list of characters that are in the get-off-my-screen category. And Alfred was inches from it. The only reason he never actually stepped over into it was because he actually had relatively little screen time. Uh, and then, of course, there's Stephen Fry as the villain of the Master. Foppish, selfish to a fault. Very gross. I actually have my notes right there. Compare the Master versus Denethor. It's clear they were trying to go some parallels between the Master and Denethor, but there's nothing there. There's no layers there. Um, there are a few lean scenes that are nice that showcase what it means to have popular support. Uh, there's a great scene where uh, Bard has just, and, and the dwarves have just beaten up these guards, and the, and the people in the market are just kind of, without prompting, without being told to, Without coordination, just start covering up the body so they're not found. It's a nice touch. Uh, Stephen Colbert makes his big screen debut as a guy who's one of the Master's spies. Um, but so, I want to contrast Alfred and the Master with Bard. Bard, even by this point in time, even by the time at which we have been introduced to the Master and Alfred, already has more layers to him than both of them combined. Because he does have a little bit of the Batman-y kind of thing going for him. And it is funny how much he looks like Orlando Bloom. It's weird, actually. But ignoring those two things, he's obviously a decent folk. I mean, he obviously cares about people. He flat out gave those fish away for free and has been arguing, and, and again, has popular support. But he also has self-interest. But he also cares about, you know... He's, he's got several layers to him. I'm not going to go through each of them, because I have to check my notes to remember all of them. Okay, so we've got self-interest, we've got the caring, we've got the untrusting, and we've got the harsh. We see in Bard someone who has been living in harsh circumstances. And I don't mean harsh as in a dark, wintry place. I mean harsh as in hopeless. Obviously, the despair thing isn't really a common theme in these films like it was in the first three. But Bard, at this point, is pretty much on the edge of despair. He's one step away from just, ugh, and giving up completely. And that colors everything he does. And so he is willing to help. And then it then becomes amusing because their greatest ally in this area turns into their greatest enemy. Once the dwarves are discovered... Everyone's all of a sudden on their side, except for Bard. 
but it makes perfect sense. Because Bard is interested in the good of these people, and himself, and his family. He's not completely selfless, after all. So it's not like the idea of riches doesn't interest him. It's the idea of a dragon doesn't interest him. And he understands better than most because of his father and... Uh, I don't know how many generations up, actually. I don't remember if it's his father or his father's father or whatever. So, <laughs> that's kind of relevant. And it's also so appropriate. Thorin makes a comment, which seems like a throwaway line, but it pays off in a big way. Because he mentions, you know, uh, Bilbo's like, what is this place? And Thorin says, this is the realm of men. And then we see a nice little panoramic shot of the absolutely gorgeous lake town. And then, later on, Thorin appeals to men by appealing to their pockets. Not once does he say, we want to find our home, or we want to reclaim our kingdom, or we want to reunite our people. No, the only thing he does to convince the people is money, 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 money. That's every single thing he says to them, is trying to appeal to their greed. And of course that works because of the nature of how men work, and especially these people who are poor, and who have been left poor for some time, as a consequence of the master and his meddling. And that's why it doesn't work on Bard, because Bard is not a man of normal stature. He's a king. I don't mean he's literally a king, but by the definitions that the Lord of the Rings movies have been defining, he is a king of men. He, he fits all the qualifications. I know he has a much bigger role in the movies, too, consequently. But he qualifies quite a bit. Did I seriously? Hang on just a second. There we go. Sorry. <laughs> he qualifies. And um, a king of men isn't going to be tempted by, ooh, gold. He's not an ooh shiny. He's a, I need to take care of the long-term view. I need to do things for the right reasons kind of a person. Um... So then there's a scene where Legolas and Tariel interact. And I love it because if not for the earlier scenes helping to flesh out Legolas, his actions would have been kind of cheap. But we now, now that we've had these little, these, and it's literally just two. We've had two insights into Legolas's character. But it means that Legolas now has two reasons to go with Tariel. Three, actually, excuse me. One, because he has the hots for her. We'll just get that out of the way. But also because he do he doesn't want to just be inactive while evil is growing stronger. He has shown to have some kind of sense of a moral code, of some kind of fiber, of, of decency about him, of being what will eventually become Legolas the hero. And he also has another reason. Pride. The Wood Elves have a lot of pride going about them. And one of the so Tariel flat out says, Are he, she hits him with both of these points. Are we not part of this world too? And when did we let evil get stronger than us? And she nails him with both of those. So he has three reasons now to follow her and agree to this. And I like that because otherwise it would seem kind of just, well, why is Legolas here? Because it's Legolas. So we, I mention this because, I know this is going to sound heretical, but I, I know I mentioned already, but I really think Legolas had more of a character arc in these films than he did in the original trilogy. He's also... Um, he he literally can defy gravity and physics, but whatever. <laughs> that gets even worse in the third film. Um, 
There's also a nice line I wanted to touch on really quick before we move on. Uh, in the scene where Thorin and Bard and the Master are all talking to all the people. The Master really showcases how one-dimensionally stupid, evil aristocrat he is. But he does have a good line about this, because he says, We must not be... Uh, paraphrasing. We must not be too quickly to blame. Comma. Because it's all your fault. That's actually not what he says, but that is how he means it. He literally goes from, we must not be quick to lay blame, to it's all your fault, it's all your fault. And it shows how stupid evil he really is. Here's a question for you. Thorin decides to leave, uh, leave Keeley behind. Now that ended up being a good thing. But why did he do it? Remember, one of the things that's been a common theme in all five movies up to this point is... Doing the, doing the hard thing for the right reason. Leaving behind one of your kin is a hard thing to do. And there was a right reason to do it, I think. But I'm not sure Thorin did it for the right reason. He might have. Because this is the very beginning of that dragon sickness problem. The very beginning. I think he did it for both reasons. The right reason and the wrong. And the right reason in the case is he needs to be taken care of. He needs to get better. And the wrong reason is, of course... The quest is more important than my kin. Um. <laughs> it's also, uh, there's this scene which is unnecessary, I'll get to it in a moment, where Thorin first really shows defeat. And, I mean, that is the unnecessary scene. It's a bit of a shame because the actor, uh, Armitage, does a great job of it. You know, he... What, what did we miss? What did we do wrong? He's, he's just completely destroyed. He's like, I, I, no, this is... What did I miss? Um, and it's some powerful stuff. But it's also very cheap, uh, artistically speaking, because they give up, and then within like a couple of minutes they bail. And it takes Bilbo to put it together. Now, I find that kind of odd. Maybe we're just smart because we're the audience and we're not in the moment. You know, armchair general kind of a thing. But... I gotta be honest, again, going back to me and my sister watching the theater, the first thing both of us were like, Moonlight! We've already seen Moonlight involved in this quest. Remember? Back in Rivendell? They had to put it on and the same moon and all that fun stuff? Why wouldn't it be Moonlight, the last light of Durin's day? I don't know. So, of course, Bilbo puts that out. And it is an unnecessary fake-out scene. But... It is helpful because it's another scene where Thorin is once again like, ah, to Bilbo. So then we see an ocean of treasure. And it's crazy. I, I don't have a better word for it. It's insane watching that ocean of treasure. It Every time I see it, I'm just, I'm gawking at, at what I'm looking at. I gotta be honest, even I, and I'm not exactly a material wealth kind of guy, as you can tell just by looking at me. Even I would look at that and be like, ugh, ugh. What? <laughs> um, it's funny, by the way, because we have a visual representation. We actually have two. Uh, well, we have like five of dragon sickness. But the best way I could describe dragon sickness is sleeping in gold. That sounds like such a simple, normal thing. It's one of those things, though, that doesn't really get horrible until you really sit back and start thinking about it. This dragon is literally sleeping in giant piles, mountains of gold coins and treasures and gems and everything else. That is how much this uh, this dragon is just immersed himself in his own gold, for lack of a better term, lust. 
And it goes way beyond sanity, way beyond anything. It's pure fixation. Which is funny. Because there's another thing within this series that has a big thing about fixation about it. So it's not exactly an unheard of term for the, uh, thematic purposes within the Lord of the Rings series. I do wonder, though, how much of that gold was piled there in that giant room by Thror? And how much of it was piled by Smaug? Anyways... Let's talk about Smaug. Finally, let's talk about Smaug. Uh, he finally shows up, and he's amazing! I'm sorry to gush. Of all the many complaints that can and have been levied at this trilogy, Smaug is not on that list. At least not for me. Um, I mean, it would be nice to see more of him, but he's not really the focus of the quest, so I get that. I, I cannot praise it enough. The, the design on the animation and the voice and the, the lighting and the breath and the style... I had this comment to a friend of mine when I first saw this in the theaters. And it was basically, I've always thought of Sauron, excuse me, Sauron, Smaug. <laughs> so many S characters in the series. I've always thought of Smaug as a bit of a poofster. And I'll never forget this picture, which was one of the illustrations for The Hobbit, where he literally looks like just this little guy going, <laughs> on a pile of gold. And it's that's kind of how I always pictured Smaug. Not even for a second have I ever considered him intimidating or terrifying or anything. As I mentioned in my first video uh, last week, Smaug is the second time ever, actually, second of two, that I've actually found a dragon genuinely terrifying. And they nail it. Audio, visual, animation. Everything is perf perfectly makes this guy feel absolutely horrifying. And they do a great job of that. I love this Smaug. I'm sorry. I do. He's terrifying. He's huge. Cumberbatch nails it. I, I am a big fan of Benedict Cumberbatch, and he does nail the voice. He does a good job of Sauron as well. Um, he also has the, the attitude down pat. And I want to talk about that a little bit, because in hindsight, uh, Smaug, everything Smaug does in this movie makes sense to me. I'm going to pause for a moment. Part of what I do for a living, this rumination, this analysis stuff... Because every aspect of my show, to one extent or another, is a form of analysis. Whether it's an in-depth rumination, or a lore run, or a stream, or an exploration, or anything. It's all analytical. <sighs> one of the great threats I am always under is reading too much into things. You know, maybe maybe I'm making up... You know, it's a Rorschach test. You know, maybe it's just a blot of ink. I don't know. And I I try to use some guidelines... For example, a work that clearly has a lot more effort and time put into nuance and subtlety, I feel more comfortable reading into it because it's more likely that that was intended by the author. A work, by contrast, that was intended to be <laughs> is probably something that I'm just reading too much into and I usually don't even bother, right? So I think I can read into a series like this. I know a lot of care and a lot of craft has been put into this trilogy, even though they were rushed and even though they had a little bit of a harder time than the original trilogy. I still think I can read into this and not be reading too much into this. But I'll admit this is a judgment call, and you can feel free to call me out on this. So I'm just going to go ahead and drop the hammer here. I think Smaug's an idiot. I don't mean like, as in, oh, he's he's got the idiot ball. I mean, I think Smaug is stupid. One thing that I've always liked in certain works of fiction... Uh, is and I'm not going to name names because some of them are actually spoilers. 
but there's certain works of fiction where there's a certain thing like uh, you know, mutant powers or great strength or whatever that enables them to be uh, wow is actually a good example of this. enables them to not need to develop intellectually or technologically because it wasn't necessary you know evolution whether it be physical or social or sociological excuse me happens when it's required it happens as a result of the process of what evolution means it doesn't just boop oh we're better because we're always getting better there has to be a purpose there has to be a reason for it right so if you are this massive powerful insane strong creature what need do you have for intellect now obviously i'm not saying evolution exists within middle earth but it makes a lot of sense to me in hindsight that smaug is genuinely not intelligent that he is actually stupid. This would help to explain how Sauron, who is also actually not that intelligent, but obviously smarter, would be able to convince him towards his side. It helps explain how he reacts to certain uh, vocal stimuli. He says that, you know, flattery will get you nowhere, and yet as Bilbo continues to give him flattery, it continues to help. And he does respond well to flattery, multiple times. He also responds with the exact same, op, you know, the exact same thing to anybody who actually insults him. It actually makes him do stupid things when he's insulted. Just like a stupid person. And again, I'm not, so, the word stupid is so misused. It's usually used as an insult. I do not mean this as an insult. I'm going to try to use the word unintelligent because that's usually not an insult. He, he comes across as very unintelligent and someone who is aware of that to some extent or another and is very self-conscious about that. One of the biggest aspects of pride is refusing to accept your own flaws. And Smaug is very, very prideful. And he, con he, he, he even boasts himself constantly of, Yes, I am so amazing, and my, my teeth are like swords, and my breath is, my wings are like a hurricane, and I'm just super. He does that in several different scenes throughout this bit, reinforcing himself, reinforcing his status. And indeed, it's a unique form of pride because it's not unfounded. It reminds me of a concept uh, I've talked about before, which is uh, arro uh, arrogance born of confidence. In other words, let's say you are a football player. Let's just use something really basic. Uh, excuse me, a soccer player. Uh, and let's say you've won 100 matches in a row. You're going to get arrogant after that. But it's an arrogance born of confidence, which is a weird form of arrogance. It's kind of a, a subcategory of arrogance. Because you have a reason to feel that you're this amazing football player because you've won a hundred matches in a row. It's kind of, it's there. It's there to see. And that's where Smaug is coming from. He is super amazingly powerful and strong. He is the deadliest bastard wandering around Middle Earth right now. He is this mountainous creature that can fly and breathe fire and is virtually indestructible and just super strong. Think about it. He is terrifying. He doesn't need to be smart. There's a secondary possibility to my theory, by the way. The way I'm positing it is that Smaug was never smart. It is also possible that he became not smart, that he literally retired. He pulled a Palpatine. He was like, yep, I did it. Ugh, time to rest in my gold hoard. He might have even done it before the, the, the events when he took uh, Erebor. Either way, I think that helps to explain almost everything about how he acts and why he acts. But the reason I prefaced all this with that whole reading too much into it 
is because I also know that this is still a movie, a movie that's being made to entertain people, and there are certain things that tend to happen because movie. And it's very likely that most of these things were made to happen because movie. Realistically speaking, what probably happened is they were like, okay, Smaug obviously can't win, and so somewhere along the line, someone, whether the writers or the directors, the producers, or the art team or the vocal team or voice director, anybody was like, hang on, hang on. Why don't we make there a reason why Smaug keeps screwing up and keeps playing with these guys? Because Smaug could kill Bilbo in a few seconds at will, but he doesn't. But that makes sense. Why would he? He's in no rush. What's the what's the hurry? Yeah, I mean, I, it, when you have someone completely and utterly in your power, or at least think you do, you're not really going to be in some huge rush to kill them instantly. They're not a threat to you. Bilbo is not a threat to Smaug. He never is, actually. So, why bother? His attitude makes perfect sense when you actually think about it. And, of course, he can't. he has trouble really thinking his way around the situation. But, regardless, let me get back to my notes. What am I missing here? Um... I like the fact, they, they really emphasize the power of him. I really like that. The fact that they actually felt the tremors of his moving as far as Lake Town. That's insane. Um, and again, I have the note here, you know, why attack? Why bother? He can kill them at any time. Um, quick aside, before we get into more Smaug stuff, because the rest of this is going to be Smaug. It's interesting to me that Tariel was actually going to go ahead and leave Keeley. Uh, until he found, until she noticed the the Athelus plant, you know, the, the king's foil, because up until that point there was no hope. And so, if you put her, yourself into her mind, why bother staying? All you're gonna do is watch someone you care about die. But instead, she sees that and she's like, "Oh, I can do something about this," and she decides to stay and help. Now, of course, because that Legolas is injured, and that's gonna cause some issues, I'm sure, in the future. But. Uh, also, the Bolg thing, again, like I mentioned, he's an elite. That's just how Lord of the Rings cinematic things works. There's Mooks, and then there's elites. And Bolg was an elite, and that's really the extent of his character as well. Uh, I do like how Keeley sees Tariel in spirit form, like it, like most uh, the elves do, or our elves come across, because he was struck with a Morgul weapon. It's a nice t callback, and it also makes sense, and helps to establish something. And I suppose this is probably the time to go ahead and talk about this before I get back to Smaug. I'm not a huge fan of romance in my fiction. It's just a preference thing. You know, it's not like I'm like, whenever it happens. But it's not my thing. I don't like it, and I don't want it in my fiction. But one of the other, compl you know, the biggest complaint, I talked about this, you know, oh my god, these movies are so long, they're so long, they're so long, it was just a short book and it's so long, and I got so tired of hearing that, and I'm sure by now there have been comments on the previous video about the exact same thing. But the other complaint I heard a lot was about the love story between Tariel, who's an invented character, by the way, she wasn't in the original book, and Keeley. This is going to sound very strange, but it didn't bother me. And it, I'm I'm as weirded out by that as anybody. I'm going to try and explain why. First of all, the idea of crossing cultures has actually been a theme, a very quiet theme, but a theme nonetheless of the first film and the second film thus far. They will also be a theme of the third film, consequently. 
So the idea of using a romantic uh, relationship that is developing as a way to further examine that, I'm okay with that. That makes sense. Second reason, because it's actually kind of logical and easy to understand a basic physical attraction. I don't mean between a dwarf and an elf. I mean between a person and another person. And to be 100% blunt, we have seen less reason for romances to exist in this franchise before. There was no development of Arwen and Aragorn. Don't, don't quote the books at me. They were just together, and we were supposed to accept that. But if you won't accept that as an excuse, how about Eowyn and Faramir, who have even less of a they-should-be-together? They have literally one-and-a-half scenes together. That, there's no establishment. And that word right there is key, because this film actually went out of its way to establish a connection between the two. It's not just... So, first of all, they find the physical attraction. Okay, that's fine. I'm not here to judge. You find someone attractive. Cool. But then they bond a little bit. And they have a couple of scenes of them actually having legitimate reasons to become friends, basically. To have some kind of connection beyond just you're hot or you're pretty. So... Then, they have, it also helps because Keeley actually kind of already has been leaning in the personality direction of something that she is established to being. And what I'm trying to say there is that the two of them do actually fit together surprisingly well, at least as far as their personalities go. So we have the personality connection, the physical attractiveness, and the actual bother, bothering to establish some kind of bond of connection between the two. That's way more time and attention spent establishing that than, say, most, uh, to be blunt, films bother to do with its, with its sudden romance characters. So it doesn't really bother me that much, because they bothered to actually put it in... I should, they bothered to put it in, which I'm not hugely in favor of, but they bothered to do it right. They didn't pause the film to focus on it. It was just an undercurrent as, through several scenes. And they also didn't just say, oh, and they're together... I'm okay with that. And again, it serves a thematic purpose and helps to flesh out both characters. And actually, Legolas and Thranduil in the third film will also receive some uh, character development as a result of that, too. So yeah, call me in the super minority here, but I don't mind. And again, I'm as weirded out as anybody to find that one out. So let's go back to the Erebor. So we have uh, the first real... So we've had two signs before that Thorin is falling into dragon sickness. That's starting to get to him. It really hits full tilt when Bilbo is trying to leave. And, and Thorin stops him with a sword and then points a sword at him. Remember, up until this point, the movie has been stretching over and over and over again how much respect and how much trust that Thorin has in Bilbo. All of that makes that scene so much more powerful. Because without all of that build-up and all that establishment, it might not seem as that big of a deal. You know, if this was the Thorn from the first movie, it'd be like, yeah, okay, he's kind of being a dick, whatever. But here, he is pointing a sword at someone he calls friend. He refers to as Master Baggins and so forth. And then, of course, the dragon sickness is broken by a dragon. <laughs> I'm going to talk more about Dragon Sickness in particular in the next film, by the way. So, if you're wondering why I haven't really discussed it much yet, that's why. 
So Smaug falls for the I'm a distraction technique a few times. And this is actually where I wrote down my notes saying that I, this is when I was like, hang on, I think Smaug is unintelligent. <laughs> oh my gosh. I mean, he's still terrifying, like I said. His tactics also get worse over time as he gets frustrated and flustered. Do you notice that? As the film, as the scenes progress and he's like, and he gets a lot more brusque and a lot more, I'm just going to smash everything. And then, of course, he immediately dive, he gets so sick of it that he's like, aha, you're from Lake Town. I'm going to go hurt Lake Town. And the moment he feels like he's back on top of the situation, he gets all superior again. Like, like a bully. It's like, oh, well, I may not be able to defeat you, but I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go stamp the crap out of those people you like. Keeping in mind, he's basically running away from a battle, if you can call it that, with, what, uh, nine people? I actually lost track. It's not that many. It's, it's a small number of people. So he can go take out an entire city, because that is easier for him. And, of course, a very cruel thing to do. And then we see something that's actually a great scene in its own right. And it's very important, and it's, it, in fact, I would call it critically important to help establish uh, what's going to be happening in the third film. We see for the first, I mean, obviously Smaug was sleeping in gold piles, but as he sees the gold statue, his expression changes, and he is entranced by it. That is the one time we see Smaug truly afflicted by the gold, by the, by the dragon sickness that is named after dragons for a reason. And so he is completely caught by it, as one might expect a dragon to be caught by that. And then he is coated in molten gold. That has got to feel horrible. Just, ow. Now, my final thoughts here are kind of complicated. I know. Big surprise. On the one hand... On the one hand, um, I do, I do absolutely think that the Smaug battle, even though it would extend another 15 minutes into this film, probably should have been in this film. Because it, from, from a purely movie perspective, it's kind of weird to have the desolation of Smaug conclude Smaug's story in the Battle of the Five Armies, you know. And I don't just mean for the sake of titling, I'm just using that to make my point. It is weird that his his event basically stops and then is continued in the next film. And I, But the thing is, I also understand how weird it is to put an extra 15 minutes at the end of a film and also chop 15 minutes out of a film just for that purpose. I, I, I've seen the behind-the-scenes stuff, like I've mentioned. They were kind of in a weird pickle situation on this one. They were like, uh, um, and there wasn't really a good answer to this. There was no truly good answer to the situation. That being said, as much as I think it would be better if Smaug's fight had happened here, the end of this movie left me in chills. It's one of the most perfect poetic scenes in the two movies thus far. He flies out, and beautiful music plays, which is not what you'd expect for seeing a giant dragon going off to kill thousands of people. It's this beautific music, peaceful almost, kind of angelic, I would call it, except without the choir. Just... And he's soaring, and it's this beautiful, quiet night. And he's flying up there. And then he gives his lines, you know, reinforcing himself again. I am fire. I am death. The music cuts off. The sound cuts off. 
And it cuts to Bilbo, who in absolute horror says, What have we done? Bam. Cut to credits. I'm getting chills just talking about it right now. I got chills, you know, a couple hours ago, re-watching it. It's a damned powerful scene. That being said, it would have still been a damned powerful scene if this had segued immediately into the third film, I think. And by the third film, I mean the big battle. We're almost done, guys. It's been a hell of a week for me. Oh my god, I've been busting my ass getting these videos done. I hope you've been enjoying so far. Uh, next week, for you, and tonight, for me, I will be seeing you with the Battle of the Five Armies.